Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again. And as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio this week is my friend Max Thornton. But first, I need to talk to all of you about The Mummy. Listeners of this show will remember that I love seeing movies about things from the distant past that are anachronistic and historically inaccurate. It's one of my favorite things. So obviously, um, when I saw that Universal was rebooting the Mummy franchise with, for some reason, Tom Cruise, sure, um, I knew I had to go see it. And the fact that it has been sort of not quite bombing, but close to bombing, sort of just slugging along throughout uh, the global box office made me want to see it even more because I just I have a real soft spot in my heart for poorly received movies about mummies. So I went to go see it, and I, I, I have the strangest sensation that I am being gaslighted by a movie studio. And that's not something I've ever said before, and it sounds ridiculous, but I'm very upset by it. This is dear to my heart. I fell asleep last night thinking about this. So uh, you may or may not be aware that Universal is trying to get a shared universe going called Dark Universal. Um, And I know it sounds a little goofy. I'm all behind it. They want to reboot all the classic monster movies from the 1930s um, and the 1940s that sort of they like cut their teeth on as a studio, right? So bringing back your mummies, your Van Helsings, your Invisible Mans, um, your Invisible Men, um, uh, you know, your Brides of Frankenstein and your Frankenstein's classic. Um, And I'm here for that. And it's going to be like a shared universe where each movie sort of focuses on a different monster and maybe they periodically have collaborations or fights. Um, And I'm here for that. I want that. But here's the thing, friends. They tried to do this three years ago. And now they're trying to convince us that they didn't try to do it three years ago, but they did. And I remember it. And I remember it because I loved it when they started doing it. And I still love it now. That movie It was a little film called Dracula Untold, starring Luke Evans. Uh, And it asked the important question, what if Dracula was just a really good dad? Uh, It did not do well. It was a very strange movie that mostly just I saw. But that was supposed to be the beginning. They set it up, this weird ending that clearly set it up for a sequel, inexplicably several characters who had very clearly died non-magical deaths on screen reappeared. Sorry, spoilers for a movie none of you saw three years ago, and to be honest, probably aren't going to see now, show up in the sort of stinger at the end, and someone says, let the games begin for sort of no reason. Um, So there's this sort of idea of, okay, something's beginning. Um, But it didn't do well. Nobody really saw it. Nobody really got excited about it. So they decided... That never happened. That was never going to be the beginning of Dark Universal. Uh, This is the beginning. It's The Mummy. And now The Mummy's not doing very well. And people are sort of blaming Tom Cruise, which is fair, because he was certainly a a weak part of the movie. But I'm so afraid that they're going to do it again. I'm so afraid that they're going to say, nope, that wasn't really the start either. We're taking another mulligan. The next one's the start. You can't keep doing that. You can't keep trying to reboot franchises and then quitting just because only I saw it. I will see it enough for everyone if you just keep making them. I don't want to have to, in another three years, sit through Bride of Frankenstein by myself in a movie theater. And then Universal says, just kidding. We're not starting yet either. You already started. Take what you did. You got to dance with them. What brung you? 
it's very important to me. Also, this is going to be a really long introduction, everybody. Just strap yourselves in. In The Mummy, the mummy in question, and, you know, mild spoilers for the Tom Cruise mummy. So if you still haven't seen it now in mid-July uh, and you're planning on seeing it, I don't know, skip ahead a couple minutes and, and get to the questions. But for those of you who don't mind, mild, mild spoilers. Uh, the titular mummy decides uh, that she's going to murder everyone who stands in between herself and the throne. Uh, and she does this by slitting their throats in their sleep. And the people she kills are as follows. Her father, her stepmother, and a baby. There are a lot of good reasons not to do that. But, like, leaving that aside, saying that that's your goal, for some reason she has to undergo a demonic ritual where she summons essentially Satan himself, the god of death, Set, the Egyptian god of death, um, and find, like, a, a male host to put him in so that the two of them can rule together. Fine, but you don't need the power of Satan himself to kill sleeping people and a baby. You you can just do that. Like, that's not... Like, there's, there's a lot of good reasons not to murder a baby, um, but the difficulty isn't one of them. Babies are very easy to kill if you are, like, a murderous princess who wants to rule all of Egypt. Just, just kill the baby by yourself. Like, there's no reason you have to get a partner to do it and then eventually, like, make Tom Cruise take over for that guy. Like... This is not a case of can women have it all. Like, you you genuinely could. I believe in your ability, ancient princess, to kill a baby if you needed to, which I don't think you should do. But if you're going to do it, you don't need the power of the devil. You can just, you can just do it. So I guess that's my other question. Maybe that will be addressed in a sequel if they ever make one instead of just continuing to reboot this franchise that I want to love, but it just won't let me in. It won't let me love it. Guys, I need to stop because I'm about to get on another tear about Russell Crowe's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Um, I really do want to talk about why Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was in a movie about the mummy. I can't. I will do this all day. I have to give advice. That is why they pay me. That is my job. Um, if you would like to hear more of my thoughts about monster movies, please email me uh, or call me or just stop by my studio in Berkeley and flag me down on the street because I could do this quite literally all day. With me in the studio this week is my friend Max Thornton. Max is a student studying theology and philosophy with a focus on gender and disability at Drew University. We became friends because of the internet, and now we're giving the world advice. Max, hello. Hello. How how are you? Are you feeling just like ready to tell everyone how to live their lives? You know, I'm always ready to tell people how to live their lives. Or at least seven people how to live their lives, which is maybe a slightly <laughs> more helpful focus. Yeah, um, it's a good number. Good. Seven. Good. I'm excited. You're excited. I, I have been saving our first letter for a while because I get a lot of letters like this one. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I, I don't always want to publish all of them because they're often in a very similar vein. But I felt like this one was worth addressing because it kind of adopts this pose that I think I see not infrequently, which is, we'll get more into it as we read it, obviously, but it's this sort of... This is too complicated for me to explain. I am over a certain age, and over a certain age, I think I don't have to learn anything new. Which, again, I, I don't believe is true, but sometimes people will say it in their letters like, I'm over 50, I can't be expected to learn this. Which I hope someday I would like to be 50, and I hope that that is not an attitude that I take towards anything. 
Yeah. But yeah, I thought this was kind of worth um, diving into. So I'm going to go ahead and just read the letter. And then soon our listeners will realize what I was talking about because they'll know too (laughs) what this letter contains. So the subject of this is just dazed and confused mom. Dear Prudence, I'm in my early 50s with two kids in college, and I'm still close to a group of mothers who formed a Mothers with Babies group 20 years ago. We're all open-minded and politically progressive, and we embrace our kids no matter what they go through, and some have gone through a lot. Nevertheless, we don't get all aspects of the gender fluidity movement and wonder if you can shed some light on it. Examples of early 20-somethings we know who want to be called they and them, I'm going to use he and she here for clarity and correct grammar although I always use they and them when I'm with them, or, more accurately, I avoid any pronouns and am somewhat nervous I'll mess up. A girl who had a mastectomy and wants to be seen completely without gender, and who gets upset if people accidentally assign a gender pronoun besides they and them, it's all okay in the small liberal arts college environment, but outside of that, upon graduation in the outside world, how will she cope? A girl who has tried to harm herself twice, who identifies with any minority group she can. She recently decided she had autism. She came out as a lesbian and now has a girlfriend who is trans, which makes her mother wonder if she really is a lesbian, as she's having heterosexual sex after all, or if this is merely another minority group to identify with. A boy who came out as non-straight, has a boyfriend, and who also, despite being in the top 1% of his high school class, is now failing out of college. The parents of the kids who have come out have no problem with homosexuality, but they do worry about failing out of school, depression, anxiety, and other problems. It seems like the gender fluidity identification is often a way for unhappy kids to gather. Besides the tiny minority of people with gender dysphoria, the gender fluidity movement seems to be hurting more than helping. Woo! That was just tough to read. Yeah, there's a lot going on there. There's so much going on here. I kind of went back and forth about whether or not to sort of leave all the language as is, um, because obviously some of it is is, uh, more than a little dismissive. Um, But I think I I decided to keep it as it was because I felt like to do otherwise, it would be difficult to address the issues here, right? Which is, so, man, for starters, this lady is worried about everybody. She is just... (laughs) Deeply, deeply, deeply concerned about all these kids, and uh, would, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go so so far as to say it's a little concern trolley. Yeah, that's the term that came to mind when I read it. Yeah, um, there's also a lot of sort of assuming that, um, like confusing correlation with causation, right? Like these kids, like my friend's kid isn't doing well in school and he's non-straight. So obviously one is causing the other rather than lots of people have a hard time in college. Lots of kids who were incredibly driven in high school um, go off to college and have a crisis of confidence or uh, just go through some personal difficulties or whatever else, like party too much on the weekends and they have a tough time. Like that's not unusual. So don't be so quick to assume that every unhappy person you know who is not straight or cisgender is unhappy because they are not straight and cisgender. Yeah. And if they are, maybe it's a good thing that they can gather together. Right. Right. There's a lot (laughs) of assumptions that if we could remove the idea of being gender fluid or non-straight or agender from these kids' mind, then they would become happy. Um, As opposed to 
Like the unhappiness is is something that would be there regardless. It's not being caused by any sort of sense of gender fluidity. And also college is a really good time to be depressed. You know? <laughs> That's for sure. There's a lot of social services. People have to see you every day. Like, you know, there's a big safety net built in place. Like it's a pretty solid place to to fall apart if you need to. Do you have anything that you kind of came to mind when you were reading this letter or? A lot of things came to mind. Um, I don't want to get too much into the details, but I one thing I think is definitely worth flagging up is that if uh, someone is a lesbian and has a trans girlfriend, then they're definitely not having heterosexual sex. Like For one thing, you don't know what physical sex acts. I hope you don't know what kind of physical sex acts they are engaging in. Yep. And regardless of what they are, they're not heterosexual if the people engaged in them are two women, which they are. Right. People do, especially <laughs> cis people, tend to get really hung up as soon as they hear of somebody who's trans. They get really like, they, they want to ask a lot of questions about someone else's genitals and how they have sex. And just in general, like speculate in a pretty gross way about what that means and what it doesn't mean. And I would just go ahead and like say... Don't worry about the type of sex your friend's child is having with her girlfriend. Yeah. Right? Like, what a weird sentence for me to have to say. Um, <laughs> don't stress out about the type of sex your friend's college-age daughter is having with her girlfriend. That's good advice for everyone. All, all of my listeners. Or, or any age. Right? Like, just don't worry about it. Um, and if, if you feel like you need to ask a lot of questions about someone's, like, genital configuration or uh, uh, like make assumptions about what type of sex they are or aren't having like you're just um making more work for yourself than you need to yeah there's a lot of good information about there about gender fluidity and non-binary identities and it's not hard to find it and read up on it and just you know try to actually have an open mind <laughs> right there's a so i think kind of what what struck me the most is a, a lot of what i think is going on here is a little bit disingenuous. And I don't want to accuse you, letter writer, uh, of having a totally hidden agenda. But, it, I, you know, it kind of starts out with, like, uh, I am an open-minded progressive person. That is who I am. That can't be questioned. Um, that's just my nature. Now here's all this stuff that I don't understand, haven't, you know, clearly have not tried to learn more about um, and considering associating with depression and anxiety and failure to thrive. Um, and I want someone to, um, you know, kind of co-sign on that. And and don't you think it would be better if people didn't understand themselves that way? Which, like, whatever else you want to say about that, it's not an open-minded or progressive stance to be taking. And it's okay to say that you're not open-minded about something if that's not where you're at. But I, I would like to challenge a little bit this idea of, I am the open-minded progressive person. These kids are just taking something too far. Um, what it sounds like you are, letter writer, is confused, suspicious, uh, a little nosy, um, and pretty confident that you know what's best for these kids. Um, again, that happens. We can all go through times where we get nosy or make assumptions about other people. But I think you need to own that that's where you're at, um, because to call this progressive and open minded, um, it's just not true. That's not where you're at with this. Um, so that's, I think, kind of point number one is to say, I don't know much about gender fluidity. I don't have any personal experience with it. I don't know what it's like. Um, and if you would like to learn more about it, um, that is definitely an option for you. You can... Um, 
do a lot of reading. You can literally Google what is gender fluidity. You can try to, uh, you know, find out what, what people describe that experience as being like. Um, you, you can learn more. You are capable of doing that. Um, so that's kind of number number one. Number two is the idea of like sort of thinking that they and them is improper grammar. We've sort of addressed this already in the podcast. Um, but okay, if all you can do right now is avoid using pronouns around that person and being nervous that you'll mess up, that's that's good. You are attempting to meet that person um, and to accommodate their request. You're not yet like in a place where you understand it or you're thrilled about it, but that's okay. You are not actively trying to misgender somebody. Uh, you're not trying to like throw pronouns in their face. You're not being a jerk. That's okay. You're nervous that you'll mess up. That's human. That's that's okay. Like don't worry about that too much. You are doing your best. Um, when it comes to this worrying about somebody else who sees themselves as a gender, um, and you, you are right that this is a world that really likes to throw people into one of two categories when it comes to gender, and that it may be difficult for them to cope with that um, after graduation. Um, yeah, but I also, I promise you, they already know that. Right. They already know how hard it's going to be. They already know how gendered the world is. They already know that it's going to be very difficult outside of a liberal arts college where people might have heard more about gender fluidity. Like They, they don't need you to tell them It that. is kind of amazing sometimes how people will say, like, does this person realize how difficult it's going to be? Usually the answer is yes. Like, people have a pretty good sense of how the world responds to the idea of somebody who says... I don't fit into the gender binary. Um, this person probably was not raised like in a cave. Like they've been out in the world. They know it's hard. Um, and that's understandable. But again, I, I, it doesn't sound like your concern is uh, I really care about this person. I'm trying really hard to understand their identity. I want them to feel like seen, understood and protected. It's more like you think this kid needs a wake up call and that it would be best if it came from you instead of the world at large. And I just don't think that that's what that kid needs right now. Like, if life's going to be difficult for them around this, you know, they get to determine whether or not they think it's worth that trade-off. And and if your sort of only response to that is that's too hard, so it's not worth doing, that's not really helpful information for you to pass along to them. So that's another one that I think you can let go. Um, and, and again, uh, I understand that it's really difficult from the position that you're coming in, um, but you write, you know, a girl who had a mastectomy and wants to be seen completely without gender, um, which says that you don't see this person as the way that they're being asked to be seen. Um, they probably would not describe themselves as a girl who had a mastectomy. So um, at the very least, consider, you know, not saying that to them. Um, I understand that that's a choice that doesn't make a lot of sense to you and you don't have to understand it beautifully like tomorrow. Um, but, you know, when people try to say, this is how I see myself, um, give it a shot, you know, take them at their word. Uh, generally, assume that people mean profoundly when they say, this is how I understand myself and my relationship to gender. Um, they're usually not doing it for funsies. Um, they're usually not doing it because they're bored and they can't think of anything better to do. And they're usually not doing it because they enjoy making your life more difficult. Um, they're doing it because it's a deeply internal and deeply felt reality. Um, and you don't have to understand something perfectly to try to meet someone where they're at. Um, I just think if you really do want to know more and you can bring yourself to approach it in a genuinely sort of non-judgmental way, I 
don't think it's a bad thing to ask. Like, I don't know if it's your kid or your friend's kid, but if it's somebody that you know well, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying, what do you need me to know and what do you need from me? And don't frame it in a way that's saying, I'm so confused, I'm too old to learn, uh, help me out. But in a way, what what can I do for you? Right. Because there's a... I, I don't think that would There's hurt. a way to ask a question about somebody that kind of lets them know, I really want to know how I can be useful to you and I care about you and I want to know what it is you're thinking and feeling on a daily basis. And there's a way of asking someone a question that makes it clear, you are inexplicable to me and I demand that you explain yourself, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure no one's ever done that to you. Oh, never. Nor, nor me. I've never, I've never encountered either of those types of questions. Um, people always just hand me tiny balloons and kiss me gently on the forehead. Those are the only human interactions I have. That sounds pretty good. All right. Would you uh, go ahead and read our second letter? Sure. Subject, drinking buddies. Dear Prudence, my parents are alcoholics. My mother in particular can become histrionic and cruel when she drinks. They can also be generous, loving, fun people. A dear friend of mine still lives in my hometown, and she will occasionally go out with them. I think this is very sweet, but have asked her not to drink with them, just like I don't, and ask of the rest of my family and friends. She has ignored my request three times now, always offering up some lame excuse as to why she couldn't avoid drinking with them. Recently this happened again, and when I told her I was hurt by her disregarding my wishes, she said I didn't appreciate what an awkward position she was put in, that I was blaming her for my parents' problems, and that my parents would drink regardless. She then texted my mother that I didn't want them to hang out anymore, which caused my mother to call me probably a dozen times that evening, leaving hysterical messages and texts about how jealous I am of their friendship and what an awful, ungrateful child I am. I am ready to end this friendship over her repeated disregard for my wishes about normalizing my parents' drinking and her tattling on me. I never said I didn't want them to hang out, and she must have known that it would cause my mother to react badly based on past behavior. I am deeply hurt and saddened and trying to deal with this new family drama, but am I in the wrong here? unreasonable. Was it unreasonable? Make a ruling right now. Uh, no, I don't think it was unreasonable at all. I don't, I don't think you're in the wrong. I think your friend is being very unreasonable. So is your advice then, like, stand your ground, minimize contact? Do you think it's worth having a conversation with either the friend or the parents? Or do you feel like it's just better to take a step back? I think it wouldn't hurt to try to have a conversation with a friend. Say, hey, what's up? Why did you... Why did you tell my mother that I didn't want them to hang didn't want you to hang out with her anymore when that is not what I said? And response to that. You know, if she gets super defensive, then maybe it might not hurt to take a step back from the friendship. Yeah, I I I'm a little like I'm probably split between between your side and the sort of opposite answer. Which is, I don't think you, letter writer, are in the wrong to be concerned about your parents drinking or to not want a friend of yours to facilitate and enable the type of drinking that they do. Um, I'm also very much of the school of thought that, especially if you are the child, the adult child of an alcoholic, um, trying to manage your parents' drinking, um, no matter how well-intentioned and no matter how... Uh, you know, relatively low effort is coming from you. Like, it's not like you're, you know, driving over to their house and like hiding their alcohol from them. But just in general, I think it is a losing game. Um, And this is where I would encourage you to attend an Al-Anon meeting, Um, many Al-Anon meetings, as a matter of fact. Um, Or I know that there are secular alternatives if the sort of spiritual uh, tack of Al-Anon 
does not appeal to you. Um, because being the adult child of two alcoholics is a lot. It is exhausting. Um, and it sounds like in a lot of ways you feel like you are responsible for at the very least curtailing or minimizing their drinking. And I just think that that is a losing game for you, uh, especially from afar, which is, by the way, not a recommendation for you to move closer so that you can monitor their drinking all the more closely. Uh, I think that in general, it's never going to be effective for you to try to get someone else to curtail your parents' drinking or check in on them. Um, so it's not so much that you were totally out of line to ask your friend to do that, as I think it's not an effective strategy. Um, because what your parents really need is not a friend who's going to not drink around them. What they really need is to, at some point, decide on their own whether or not they want to get help. Um, and you kind of can't push them for that. So no, I, your friend was not right at all to misinterpret what you said and to tell your mother, well, I'm not allowed to spend time with you anymore. That was, you know, untrue, unnecessarily uh, dramatic, um, totally out of line. And it's absolutely fair for you to say to your friend, um, you know, I didn't tell you to stop hanging out with my parents. It bothers me that you did that. Um, I got to step back from this friendship. But in general, I think going forward, uh, your your next move has to be figuring out what boundaries do you need to set between yourself and your parents drinking uh, so that you are not trying to sort of triangulate with other people who are near them to get them to cut back. Um, just because I think that will, that will never work. Like, I'm pretty sure in the history of adult children of alcoholics, no child has ever been so good at getting other people to come by and manage their parents drinking that it made a serious difference. Like, if your parents want to drink alcoholically, they sure will. Um, and so it's it's not that your request was unreasonable. Um, it's that it's not going to work. And I think there's there's better work that you can be doing on yourself and letting your parents know that if and when they ever decide they would like to stop drinking, you will help and support that. Um, but in the meantime, you know, you're not going to engage if your mom calls you drunk 12 times in an evening, right? Like, that's not good for you either. So I, I think... Get thee to an Al-Anon meeting and figure out a way that you can maintain a relationship with your parents where you are not constantly panicking and trying to um, manage their alcoholism. And that's hard. That's really hard, especially when your parents are both alcoholics. Um, I wish you a lot of luck. All right. The next letter is about a rejected bridesmaid. I love spring. We get so many letters about wedding issues and it... Um, it's really wonderful. It's a wonderful, wonderful theme. And, and I look forward to moving out of bad wedding territory and into bad holiday territory when the weather turns once again. So, dear Prudence, I've been best friends with Jane since we were in middle school. Jane got married a few months ago and told me she was only planning to have her sisters as part of her wedding party. I was hurt since she was in my wedding, but I understood her desire to keep the party small. Well, on her wedding day, I discovered she actually had four bridesmaids, her sisters, and two of her college friends. I didn't want to ruin her day, so I didn't say anything about it at the time. About a month later, she texted me to get together, and I told her I was hurt by my exclusion from the wedding party and asked if I had done something to upset her. She then admitted she hadn't asked me because I'm overweight, and she thought I wouldn't look good in the bridesmaid dress she had selected. I had no idea what to say to this and told her I felt hurt and didn't think I could see her again anytime soon. I'm now not so sure what to do. I feel pretty devastated about this, especially since my weight has always been an issue for me, and I thought Jane understood. Jane told me she was sorry, but I just don't know if I can get over this. At the same time, I don't know that I should throw away a nearly 20-year friendship. What should I do? 
Max, I have never turned on a dime so hard in a letter before. Say more. So, like, first half of the, the letter, I'm like, oh, no, I think, you know, everybody has a right to have the wedding party size that they want. And it's, you know, it's not necessarily a referendum on how close you are to somebody. And I think you should let this go. And then we got to the line where Jane said, oh, I didn't ask you because I think you're too overweight to be my bridesmaid. And then I jumped on the Jane is a jerk train and I wrote it straight to the end of the line. Yeah, I completely agree. I think Jane was cruel and cowardly. Like, she couldn't even be honest. I I just, like, I cannot imagine having the kind of mindset where you think, I want my wedding day to reflect my thinnest friendships. Like, what, how is that a value of yours, Jane? You're not here. You can't hear me. But, like, what the actual hell uh i know that that's just and that she would say that to you like that she wouldn't even think wow i've done something petty and small and and terrible to a person i've known for 20 years who had me in her wedding uh because i thought she was too fat to stand up with me as i got married Uh, But that she would then, like, say it to you, just like, yeah, uh, you know, this is a thing human beings say to each other, Um, instead of being so profoundly ashamed of what she had done that she, like, changed her entire life and, uh, like, dedicated herself to relieving the suffering of others. Like, um, there should have been sackcloth and ashes. Right. I I, I just like both that she would do it for that reason and then that she would say it to you to like let you know. Yeah, I know I was in your wedding um, and that we're we're really close. But, you know, when it comes down to it, uh, I only want thin bridesmaids. Uh, That's just like what that says about her values as a person and the way that she sees other people as having value is not good. It's not even close to good. It's not good adjacent. It's not like a couple doors down from good. Um, it's bad. Do you think, Max, like, do you see this being worth, like, having a conversation about? Do you do you see this as just, like, this is a person who is not who you thought they were and you don't need to talk to them ever again? Is this worth saying, like, boy, I think you need to reevaluate your choices? Like, like what do you do in this situation? I think it's one of those things that really depends on how how graceful and forgiving the letter writer Ugh. feels they can be. But like, <laughs> and I think if, if you decide that this, like this is a deal breaker for a friendship, I think that's perfectly reasonable and you shouldn't feel bad about it. Um, but if you take some time away and you feel like it's something that you can have a, like a heart to heart, a deep heart to heart with Jane about and explain to her, like really how much that hurt you and what, you felt like that was telling you about how she feels about you and how she values you as a friend. So I think that would also be a valid choice. Yeah, yeah. No, and I, I do want to make room for the possibility that some people are more forgiving than I am. Like, I don't want to I don't want to discount that possibility. I also think, like, there are some things that an otherwise good person can do um, that if you explain to them, this is why it hurt me, they have the opportunity to sort of reevaluate their choices and and apologize and act differently. And there's some stuff that you don't have to explain that it's bad, right? Like this is villain in a Katherine Heigl movie status. Shitty. Um, This is something that a character does in a movie and the audience gasps, right? 
Like, that's yeah. how bad this is. This is this is not a gray area. It's not, oh, short-sighted. This is just cruel. Um, and the letter writer says, Jane told me she was sorry, but I just don't know if I can get over this. Like, it, it does not sound like it was a deep and fulsome apology or a sense of it was wrong. It sounds, and maybe I'm reading between the lines a little bit here, but it sounds a little bit more like, oh, I'm sorry it hurt your feelings, but also probably I would do it again. Or, you know, you know, you know how it is. No, I don't know how it is, Jane. How it is is dumb and you're a jerk. Uh, sorry, I, I, I just, yeah, I, to me, letter writer, like the bottom line here is I don't think that you should get over this. Um, I don't think you would be the one throwing away a nearly 20 year friendship if you decided that you could not be close to her again. Um, I think what she did was cruel and shallow and unkind and fat phobic and just, like, not how a good person should order their lives, and that she followed that up by telling you about it um, with what sounds like a pretty half-assed apology, um, tells me that she does not see your 20 years of friendship uh, as having more, like, seriousness to it than what dress size you wear. Like, that she would say... Well, on the one hand, I was in her wedding. We've known each other since we were children. Uh, we have a deep bond. Um, but on the other hand, she's not a size six. So I don't want her standing up with me as I marry someone that I like vow to be committed to for the rest of my life. Like she is the one who threw away your friendship. Um, and if you cannot let that go, if you cannot see her the way that you did before, if you need to say, Jane, this is just not the kind of person I want in my life. And if that's how you see me, I, I don't want to know you. I will I will fucking cheer you on, letter writer. Um, I, I, I'm just so sorry. I'm so sorry that she said that to you. I'm so sorry that that happened. I'm so sorry that she um, like kind of half-assedly apologized. And now you're wondering if you should just get over it. I don't think you should just get over it. I think you should be around people who love you and honor you and respect you and would want you to have a special place with them on one of the more important days of their life, regardless uh, of what size you were on that given day. Um, yeah, no, just fuck that decision right in the ear. And uh, I really hope you have other friends that you can talk to about this and just know that like you did not deserve what she did to you. Um, Jane, I hope we don't ever run into each other. I would have no way of knowing who you were. But, um, you know, I'm mad at you and I want to do something with that anger. All right. Uh, we're still on the subject of friends. This next letter is about ghosting. Max, would you read it for us? Sure. Dear Prudence, as a single woman in her mid-50s, friendships are important to me. I thought I had a good friend, but a year ago she ghosted our entire social group. Now she sent an email saying she moved not far away. She wants to have everyone over. I replied to her, not the group, saying I needed an explanation before we just restarted our friendship, although I was interested in reconnecting. My point was she hurt my feelings and I felt I deserved an explanation. Her response was, I am not perfect. No explanation and no offer to discuss it. What is the best way to handle being ghosted? What if the person reaches out to you? I want a drama-free life full of friends and a nice man wouldn't hurt. I love that last line so much. Me too. Like, it has nothing to do with anything else, but, like, I want that for you, too. I just wouldn't mind a nice man. Like, okay, I hope you get it. Um, good luck. Yeah, if anyone listening to this is a nice man, um, please write us and we will try to set you up. 
Um, I'm also really relieved because this is this sounds like painful and it's it's definitely like a difficult moment because the the friend did not respond in a way that sort of immediately opens the door. But nobody here did a movie villain move, right? Like I don't hate anyone in this letter. Like I've de- I'm I'm dedicating my life now to fighting Jane, right? Like I'm gonna go home and do a bunch of push-ups so that I can run into her and just like throw down a glove and say, "Madam, uh, you have impugned my honor, and we've got to fight." Uh, what do you do in this situation? What's uh What's your next move here? A response like just getting "I am not perfect" as the response to asking for an explanation. It seems to me like the kind of thing you do when it's all too complicated to explain an email or you feel that it is um i think have inviting people over is reconnecting mm-hmm. and it's not impossible that she wants to explain everything to you when she has friends over yeah yeah i think there's merit to that um i i'm inclined to at least give this another shot and um it's understandable that you do want to know more, but it also sounds like something happened. And I don't know if maybe your friend was depressed or was going through a really hard time or um, there's some sort of extenuating circumstance that she'll be able to share with you later. Um, but I think the response to I am not perfect is maybe not another email because sometimes it can be hard to talk about, you know, vulnerable, squishy feelings over email with somebody. And maybe you don't do it right now, but like maybe the next step is to try to call her. And to just say, you know, I totally understand that you're not perfect. I want you to know I'm not, like, demanding an accounting of the last 365 days in order for me to forgive you. Um, it's not that that's not what this is. I just missed you and I was confused um, and I didn't understand where you had gone. And I'd love to know what was going on with you. Because if you were hurting or going through something difficult, you're my friend. I care about you. I would want to know that. And if her response to that is you know, further stonewalling, then you can back off and let it go. But um, yeah, Max, I think that's a good point. She is trying to reach out. Um, and I think, you know, if your goal is a drama-free life full of friends, um, then a good response to that is to take a step towards her too. Sometimes, uh, Max, and you may, you may be familiar with this, sometimes when people say drama-free, what they mean is like, no conflict. And this does not seem like, this is not like soap opera levels of drama, right? This isn't something that would have happened on the OC. This isn't like a previously on the OC sort of a moment. Oh my gosh, now I really want to rewatch the OC. Um, But it's, you know, it's definitely difficult. It's a challenge and it's worth finding out more about. But this is not, you know, she didn't, I don't know, come over in the middle of the night and steal your dog. Um, This is, this. I, I, I would put this in the category of an acceptable amount of drama given that all human beings experience conflict and do things imperfectly. Um, yeah, I, I would say reach out, let her know that you're not like demanding an explanation. You just miss her and, and you would like to know more um, and and go to the dinner. And if it's awful and she's just a total jerk, you know, you don't have to push, but um, give it a shot. All right. We've got another one about weddings. I... <laughs> So many weddings. I I feel like I should be going to a lot of weddings this summer so that I can get more wedding experience because I get so many questions about them. And half the time my response is just, I don't know, that's never happened to me. Um, you should just try not caring about it. And I don't think that's always the most helpful answer to give people. But I also don't really want to go to a lot of weddings just so I can write a better advice column. So I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. Will you Will you please? I just think people. Go, go for it. 
people just need to chill out about weddings in general. I don't think that's ever going to happen. I don't think in the history of time anyone's ever chilled out about a wedding. Four people, maybe. I, I couldn't be sure. But please start forwarding all of your wedding invitations to me. Um, and I'd just send me in your place so that I can figure out what people are like at weddings. You know, I have a friend who's getting married in the Bay Area this summer, and I'm probably not going to be able to go, so I might take you up Max, on that. Max, send me. Our names start with the same two letters. We both go online a lot. Uh, we both have studied theology. So I don't see why, by the transitive property, I shouldn't be allowed to go in your stead. It's perfect. Thank you. And then I will immediately question everyone there. Is there going to be a receiving line? And if not, I'm going to throw a fit. That was in a previous column. I'm not just like coming up with random things to be angry about. All right. So next one. Wedding dates missing. Dear Prudence, I'm getting married in three weeks. My groom has an established group of friends and is the last one to get married. He attended all of his friends' weddings in several other countries and states. Now that it's our turn, all of his friends are coming, but without their wives. Every single wife in this friend group said she couldn't make it due to childcare issues. I could understand for new babies. But none of them have new babies, and all of them live close enough to their grandparents or other relatives that they regularly go on child-free vacations. Our wedding destination isn't even a plane ride away. It would be for a night only. I'm trying hard not to take it personally, but my feelings are hurt. What do you think? I think you have an opportunity to not care about this. Yeah. I mean, these aren't even your husband's friends. They're his. They're your husband's friends' wives. Like, they're not your friends. It doesn't sound like you're super close with them. Uh... Yeah, um, I, this is not a referendum on you as a person. And, like, I don't think they're all making something up. Like, I think it is difficult to get childcare for a night away. And if, you know, people only get so much vacation a year and they would rather use it to travel with their partner than go to the wedding of, you know, a, a friend of their husband's, um, I, I, I kind of get it. Yeah, I don't think it's some grand conspiracy to make you feel unloved at your wedding, I really think you should give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Assume that uh, they're being honest, that they really just can't make it and move on with your wedding in your life. Yeah, it would be one thing if this was like your siblings or your oldest, closest friends, or, or even if none of your husband's friends could make it. And and also like that happens sometimes too. I understand that sometimes we feel like the wedding our wedding is maybe the one day that we get to really ask everyone to focus on us. And there's this sort of fear that if people don't, it means they don't care. Um, but, you know, you should also bear in mind that, like, getting childcare can be difficult. And it doesn't mean they don't care about you guys as a couple. Um, it just, you know, sometimes people get wedding fatigue. And I, I'm sorry to say that because I know everyone's like, but my wedding is going to be great. And I'm sure it is. I'm sure your wedding is the best one. But, you know, if someone can't make it and they're not like, you know, someone who's like ride or die for you in your family. If they weren't there, it would just devastate you. Just accept that sometimes things come up in life and not everyone can make it to your wedding. And that's OK. They'll get to see pictures. You'll catch up some other time. Your husband's friends are all coming. Um, they really do have to look after your children. Even if a baby's not a baby, someone needs to be looking at it pretty much all the time is my understanding of, of children. Right. Like you can't just say like, hey, you're five. <laughs> take it easy for the next 24 hours right like you somebody has to always be there yeah i think that's the case you can't just be like here's a pizza have only three slices a day and you know 
walk it off. I don't know. I don't know what you say to children. You probably don't say walk it off. Yeah, like childcare is a real thing. Grandparents aren't just like magical babysitting machines. Sometimes they have plans too. Um, and I, I would rather go on a vacation with my partner than go to somebody's wedding. Sorry. I'm, I'm on their team here. <sighs> All right, Max, take us away on the next one. Subject. I love a bidet, except when I don't. Dear Prudence, I recently got my longtime partner a bidet for his house. We live apart. I grew up in a country where they are common, and he has always wanted one. He installed it and loves it, and often thanks me for it. However, he now refuses to buy toilet paper for his house, saying that it's saving him a lot of money to not buy it. I pointed out to him that I tend to pee quite a few times when I am over at his place, and I do not want to wash and dry myself every single time. To counter that, he offers me a clean shop towel to wipe with, which I then put on the floor, hang up and hope nobody mistakes for a hand towel, sneak into his kitchen and leave it there for him to dry his dishes. I did start bringing over my own TP, but when I left it in his bathroom one time, I came back to realize he had used it all up blowing his nose or something. So, he refuses to buy toilet paper, he offers me what I consider to be a kind of gross solution, he doesn't always have clean shop towels, and he'll blithely use my supply unless I hide it. I have created a monster. Please give me one of your devastating scripts so I can impress upon him how terrible this is. People in my home country would be appalled. He is otherwise a delightful person. I have been silently screaming the entire time you read this letter. I love this letter so much. First of all, letter writer, you did not create a monster. I Like, don't put this on you. Like, giving someone a bidet uh, does not mean they suddenly turn into someone who's like, oh, it's cool if you wipe yourself with this old dish towel, right? Like, that is him. He has created the monster. He is his own Dr. Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster. And you are just like the innocent, innocent village girl who gets thrown in a lake. Yeah. Cards on the table. I love bidets. I would love to have one, but I would also keep my bathroom supplied with toilet paper because I am a human being who lives in a society and that is what you do. Yeah. yeah. Like, does this guy never have anybody else come around to his house? What does he do if his landlord comes around? I guess he probably owns the house. <laughs> I, I just... What do you do if your landlord comes around and needs to use the restroom and you just have a bidet? Like... I mean, like... How much was this guy spending on toilet paper that he's like, oh, I'm saving so much money on toilet paper? Like, toilet paper is not... I feel bad because, like, just a couple weeks ago, I did my rant about the Charmin Bears, and now I feel like this is a toilet (laughs) paper-themed podcast. But, like, toilet paper's not that expensive. And especially, like, if you have the bidet for, I don't know, half of the toilet usages, you're using at least half as much... Like, you're, you're still cutting down... Man, you were given a free bidet and you would be spending less in toilet paper. You're still saving money, my man. Like, I tell you what you do with this guy. You drag, drag him to Costco. It doesn't even have to be Costco, like any supermarket. Pick up one of those giant packs that has like 24, 48, whatever, how many rolls of toilet paper in it. Uh, you drag him to the checkout line and you make him buy that for you. Yes. And then you keep it at his apartment and if you need to, you put it in the closet and just pull out a, a roll when you're there so that he's not tempted to use it all up because it's sitting out. If need be, you buy him a couple of boxes of Kleenex as well so that he can use that for other Again, things. Again, he is paying for this. You've already bought him the yes, bidet. absolutely. <laughs> you are not buying him Kleenex so that he can blow his own damn nose. But yeah, it doesn't sound like he's going to do this without without you making him do it. So. Drag him, drag him to Costco, make him buy this stuff. He, it is not an unreasonable expectation. He had better be so delightful. 
Like when he speaks, I I need to know that like lilies and pearls and rubies are dropping from his lips. Like he he needs to be the best guy alive for this to be a non-deal breaker. So I'm going to take your word for it. You say he's your longtime partner. Boy, howdy. This, yeah, you you get to really impress upon him that it, this is a come to Jesus moment, that this is, uh, you know, like the dish towel thing is right out, right? Like that is, um, I, again, feel free to use strong language when you speak to him about this, um, but just say, I I can't even believe I'm coming up with a script for this because this is again like, yeah, this is this is a moment where it's like, hey, in order for me to come over to your house, here is something I need from you. Never, ever, 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 ever again suggest that I use an old shop towel to wipe myself with and then leave on the floor. That is disgusting. If you had told me that on our first date, there would never have been a second date. Uh, I don't want our relationship uh, to be tainted with thoughts of, like, a piss towel. So take that off the table, my darling love. Um, I, I, I just, I, again, I can't believe I'm coming up with this script. But yes, yeah, um, here's what we're doing. We're going to Costco right now. You're going to buy a supply of toilet paper that you keep in the closet in your bathroom for people who do not need a full bidet experience um, and would like to treat their undercarriages like they live in the 21st century. Um, And you're not going to use it to blow your nose. If you need a lot of Kleenex for that, get it, keep it somewhere else. This is a non-negotiable for me. The next time I come over, if there's not toilet paper in the house, I'm not going to stay. I'm going to go home. Um, This is not a reasonable thing we need to compromise on. This isn't like, oh, two reasonable adults see something differently. This is a basic hygiene issue, and you need to do this for me. I'm a human being, and I need to be treated like one. We are not having an argument about this. Um, And if he's really delightful, he will hear the phrase piss towel uh, said about himself, and he will feel shame. And sometimes shame is good. Sometimes shame is necessary. It reminds us to not have piss towels. Um, and that's good. We, we, we shouldn't have those lying around. Um, you should not hand someone a hand towel uh, and, and no game plan. Like, oh, here, wipe yourself this with, with this, and then I don't care what you do with it. You got to have a strategy, my man. Oh, I want to set him up with Jane. <laughs> Honestly, I just want these two monsters to ruin each other's lives and, uh, you know, possibly be quarantined on like an island um, where they can just be horrible at one another. Um, that's a beautiful thought thank you thank you Max Max uh, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on my upsetting show and <laughs> thank you for having and me just like reining me in and, and patting me on the head and telling me that I'm good which uh, I apparently need a lot from my guests thank you thanks for listening to Dear Prudence our producer is Audrey Dilling our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton if you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR, that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short, 30 seconds, a minute, tops. 